This is the first time I've preached in front of real people since like March. So let's hope I remember how to do this. I mean, computer screens count technically. Those were real people too, but I actually like see people. And uh, one of my students from the core program who just graduated is with us here. Glad you're here and I'm glad you brought some friends with you. Glad you're here, fellas. Welcome. I hope you're, you're blessed by the festivities here. So I've been told according to the laws of the Medes and Persians that that is the law of the land. So I'll do my best to be a good boy time-wise. So uh, I'm going to kneel and pray and then we'll begin. Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege uh, to know you, uh, to be given a most precious message that truly transforms the life. And as we speak about the experiential component of the covenants, I just pray that you would bless us, that you would encourage us, and that you would give this preacher the ability to do what needs to be done in the time allotted. Show us your glory now, we pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, Bill Brace finished with literally like three seconds left. It was amazing. If you weren't paying attention to that, that was incredible. Uh, and the message was great. And he talked about the law, and we're talking about the law, which is even more awesome-er. All right, the law and the covenants is what we're covering this morning. Now, this is not an exhaustive discourse on the historical side of the covenants. If you're acquainted with, there's kind of two primary angles you can take with the covenants, the historical side or the experiential side. We're just going to be giving a practical discourse on the experiential side. If you want to geek out on the covenants, read Skip McCarty's book, In Granite or Ingrained, uh, you'll be blessed. Okay, so what we're going to cover is where the rubber meets the road in our experience in regards to the law and the covenants. So Jeremiah 31, we'll see where the new covenant is introduced. Jeremiah chapter 31, as far as with that language, it wasn't introduced there, but where that language is used. And we're just going to have a Bible study this morning. Are you okay with that? Is that allowed? Okay. I have permission in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make what type of a covenant? A new covenant. Oh, it just feels good to hear people talk to you while you're preaching. All right. Well, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now, that's where it's kind of introduced. Clearly, there's some history here. So I want to go back and look at that history before we come back to Jeremiah 31. Again, we're talking about the experiential side of the covenant. So the old covenant defined. Go to Exodus 19, and we'll go to the Sinai covenant and see what transpired that led to God's frustrated uh, demeanor in Jeremiah chapter 31. Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 8, says this. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel." So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words as the Lord commanded them. And then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And in verses 21 to 25, God makes it clear that he wants Moses to be with the people when the next thing happens. And that is, ironically, what? The Ten Commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 
21 through 17. Okay, we're going to skip that though. Go to Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 and 7 now. Exodus 24, verses 3 and 7 says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the Lord's which the Lord has said, we will do. Then skip down to verse 7. And it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do and be obedient. Okay, so all the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will do, we will do. Now, I have a very simple question for you today. Did they? No, less than 40 days later, they're running laps around a golden calf in pagan revelry, right? It didn't work out too well. This is why when Moses comes down from the mountain to, mount, to the base of Mount Sinai, he throws down the tablets, signifying that they have broken covenant with God. Wasn't he's got an anger problem, right? And Deuteronomy 4 verses 11 to 13 makes it very clear that this covenant they're referring to is talking about the Ten Commandments, okay? For time's sake, I just need to keep this train moving. So now go back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, and we're going to reread what we started with and then add some layers to it. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I was their deliverer, their redeemer. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So God's making it clear then that the law is no longer something that they thought was outwardly imposed. It's something that's meant to be inwardly inscribed. It's meant to be part of the human experience. So this is beautiful truth because this implies that the new covenant does not negate God's holy law. It doesn't negate it. If anything, it makes the law more permanently a part of a human's experience than in the old covenant. Yeah? And so that's good news for us. So the law doesn't go away. God's original intention for the covenant doesn't end. What changes is the onus of who is making sure that the people keep it. God is now promising to empower them to keep it instead of them promising to keep it in their own strength. Now, God had a different plan than this, and we'll go to that here in a moment. But here's the other point. We also assume that when we don't keep the law, we're cast off and can't be God's people anymore, right? We can be prone to believe that. But part of the new covenant, given to lawbreakers, by the way, is the notion that they're already in God's favor, and that's shown through God's pursuit of them. Now, they will be my people and I will be their God. Their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember it no more. Now, this sounds too good to be true, right? To our human, carnal, guilt-laden, shame-filled flesh, can God really forgive me? Where do those thoughts come from? Well, Revelation chapter 12 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He leads you into sin, which leads you to feel shame, and then he beats you down with shame and says, you're nothing but the very thing that you've done, as Paul talked about yesterday. Um, but here's the question. 
If God has no intention of remembering your sins, why do we insist on reminding ourselves of our sins and failures? Right? Now Hebrews chapter 8 tells us something that's absolutely wonderful and also gives us some insight as to what some of the issues were with this covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and go down to verse 6. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Again, we're sharing the experiential side of the covenants. Hebrews 8 and verse 6 says this, But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as Jesus is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. We had this saying in southern Illinois, If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right? But, says finding fault with who in verse 8? With them, he says. And then Paul quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, most of that, that general verses. He does it again in Hebrews 10, by the way. He quotes from Jeremiah 31 twice. But I'm going to skip after that since we've already read it. Verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And experience, there's a historical context to this, but, but experientially, our old covenant experience has to go away. It has to vanish away. So experientially, it's no longer a covenant that's based upon man's faulty promises to God. It's now based upon God's faithful promises to man. And through the hands of a mediator, through Jesus. And Hebrews 8, or Romans 8 talks about this. Now, so it's not the content of the covenant that's at fault then. It was the self-confidence and self-righteousness of the people who made the agreement. Right? And this virus doesn't die easily, unfortunately. Even after 40 years of reflecting upon the failure and death of their predecessors, the second generation still didn't learn the lesson that came out of Egypt. And we see this in Joshua chapter 24. This is awesome. Joshua chapter 24. I like being in an environment where I can just geek out on this stuff for a little bit. Joshua chapter 24 and beginning of verse 16. This is actually quite an interesting passage. Joshua chapter 24, beginning of verse 16. Uh, we'll, we'll precede this, verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. This is Joshua's last charge. It's like Joshua's equivalent of Deuteronomy, right? It's his last charge to the nation of Israel before he passes off. Okay? Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Maybe you have one of those little placards in your house that says something like that. I was just in someone's house that does say something like that. It's in front of Don Latour's refrigerator, right? Yeah. And, um, and it's true. Your house should serve the Lord, and their house does serve the Lord by God's grace. Okay, anyway, go verse 16. So the people answered and said, Far be it from, from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great things in our sight and preserved us in all our ways that we went from among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And you, you kind of start to think, hey, maybe they get it now. And so you're assuming that Joshua's response is going to be, Amen. Instead, at first glance, it looks like the worst pastoral appeal ever. 
But Joshua said to the people, you can't serve the Lord for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Can you imagine a pastor saying, serve the Lord? And the church says, you bet, preacher, I'm going to serve the Lord. And he says, you can't serve the Lord. And he's not going to forgive your sins. It seems like a terrible response were it not for the fact that Joshua does understand what's happening here. The Andrew Study Bible picks up on this. It says, um, it says this. It says, this reaction of Joshua to Israel's pledge of commitment echoes Israel's similar pledge at Sinai many years earlier in Exodus 19 and 24. We've already read that. Even though the words were appropriate, the people needed to realize that it was not enough to make a brave declaration and pledge of allegiance. They also needed to recognize their inability in themselves to obey God and that they could not be forgiven while they were depending upon their own strength and righteousness. They needed to trust wholly in the merits of the promised Savior, represented by the sacrifice, who would forgive their sins and give them power to obey. So they actually didn't get it, still, unfortunately. Ellen White says this in The Faith I Live By 111. What is justification by faith? It is the work of who? The work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their own nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Well, in Exodus chapter 19 and 24, the Israelites clearly did not see their nothingness. And even in Joshua 24, they didn't see their nothingness. And so in turn, they were not in a place to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now, I was tempted to throw a bunch of stuff in here from the Everlasting Covenant, but I've got that, that doggone clock in front of me. So I'm going to read some, uh, and I didn't even have time to put them in the slides because it's a longer quote. But I want to be a good boy, and it's good for preachers to not preach so long anyway. But brevity is not listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. So pray for us. This is from Wagner in Everlasting Covenant. He says, A careful reading of Exodus 19, 1-6 will show that there's no intimation that another covenant was then to be made. Indeed, the evidence is to the contrary. The Lord referred to his covenant, the covenant long before given to Abraham, and exhorted them to keep it, and told what would be the result of their keeping it. The covenant with Abraham was, as we have seen, a covenant of faith. And they could keep it by simply keeping the faith. God did not ask them to enter into another covenant with them, but only to accept his covenant of peace, which he had long before given to the fathers. And the proper response, therefore, the people would have been, Amen, even so, O Lord, let it be done unto us according to thy will. On the contrary, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they repeated their promise with additional emphasis, even after they had heard the law spoken. It was the same self-confidence that led their descendants to say to Christ, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Think of mortal men presuming to be able to do God's work. Christ answered, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Even so it was in the desert of Sinai when the law was given and the covenant made. Their assuming the responsibility of working the works of God showed lack of appreciation of his greatness and holiness. It is only when men are ignorant of God's righteousness that they go about to establish their own righteousness and refuse to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. See Romans 10.3. Their promises were good for nothing because they had not the power to fulfill them. The covenant, therefore, which was based on those promises, was utterly worthless so far as giving them life was concerned. All that they could get from that covenant was just what they could get from themselves. 
and that was death. To trust in it was to make a covenant with death and to be in agreement with the grave. Their entering into that covenant was a virtual notification to the Lord that they could get along very well without him, thank you, that they were well able to fulfill any promise that he could make. And he says a bunch of more awesome stuff, but I'm, I'm going to practice self-control. So Patriarchs and Prophets chapter 32 gives us some answers as to, well, then why did he allow this covenant to be made? If God knew that they were going to stumble over this, why did he go ahead and agree with them? Well, we're told in Patriarchs and Prophets that the nation of Israel spent 400 years in an appeasement-based religion. We do works to get the gods to favor us, to look at us, and to just kind of, you know, leave me alone, right? I just want to be in good standing, and I just want to make sure everything's okay. In fact, the nation of Israel responded very much in this way. If he says another word, we're going to die. So you go talk to him and let him kill you. I don't want to hear anymore. This scares me, and I, he just seems angry. Just you deal with it, okay? Whatever he says, fine. They did not understand the message of God's love at all, and they did not understand the promise of a coming Savior. And because they refused to enter into the covenant that God wanted them to enter into, the same covenant that Abraham did, the only option was to give them what they wanted. Right? God is love. He lives in, a, in an atmosphere of agape, other-centered love. And God, at the end of the day, is going to give people what they want. And that's what love does. And so he gives them what they want, but it's a teaching tool. They're going to have to crash and burn to now see their need of a Savior. So this is the only reason why God permitted for this covenant at Sinai. And eventually the lesson will be learned. But here's, here's the issue here. There's, the, the, there's still kind of the question of the statements that seem to be ones of chronology, Old Covenant and New Covenant. And she breaks this down. It's kind of nerdy, but I'll do my best to make this short and simple. So what is referred to as the Old Covenant is actually the Second Covenant. And the only reason, right, so the covenant that God made with Adam, with Noah, and what's even more clear to Abraham was the original covenant. And the only covenant that God ever wanted to enter into with man but the blood to ratify that covenant is not shed until Calvary. So it's not complete. And so the reason why it's called the Old Covenant at Sinai is because they shed blood that day. Right? They sprinkled blood on the scroll. They sprinkled blood on the people. So that's why it's called the Old Covenant. But it wasn't the original. Just to make that clear, the New Covenant is actually the original. Okay? So the language can kind of be confusing to us. It, it, there, it's, it's not about chronology. It's about when blood is shed. Okay? So anyway, read that chapter. It's amazing. There's a bunch of great information in there. Chapter 32 of the Law and the Covenants is what it's called in Patriarchs and Prophets. Okay? But here's the really cool thing. God set the people up to succeed, though. It's not that the people didn't know any better, and God should have known after 400 years of a pagan appeasement-based religion, they need to be indoctrinated. God preloaded this gun to fire the right direction. In Genesis chapter 15. Turn there. I love this. This is so cool. Genesis chapter 15. So God shows up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. I'm everything you've been looking for. And Paul throws down on this idea of what the Old Testament says about Abraham and what, not, not the Apostle Paul, but Paul Conniff. Well, I mean, both technically. But, but yesterday's message on Paul Conniff that he shared about Romans 4, we see in Genesis 15 that Abraham doesn't respond by saying, Amen, Jesus, you're everything I've been looking for. You know what Abraham says? He says, no, you're not. You promised me a kid, and I have no kid. Some servant in my house is going to be my heir. 
And God says, step outside. He says, look up. And he says, if you could count these stars, the number of the descendants I will give you will outnumber them. My promise to you hasn't changed. Then he makes some other promises in Genesis chapter 15. He tells Abraham that your descendants are going, uh, Abraham believes the Lord at that point and it's accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 6. Then he says, I'm the Lord who pulled you out of Babylon, right, out of Ur the Chaldees. And how do I know that you're going to inherit it? And there's this really interesting thing that happens. You know, how, how do I know that what you said is actually going to take place? God tells them to cut up animals and to separate them. This is covenantal language in Abraham's day. They separate the animals, and then Abraham falls asleep, kind of wakes up with this like spooky dream, and he sees a fiery torch passing in between these two halves of the severed animals. And what God is telling Abraham is, so let that be done to me if I don't keep my word to you. So let me be torn asunder if my promise to you isn't fulfilled. And interestingly enough, when Jesus comes to this earth, he is torn asunder to reunite God and man. God did keep his promise, and the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom to make it abundantly clear that the separation is done. It is finished. But then God gives him a history. Actually, it's, it's a prophetic utterance that will be history for the Israelites later. So he says in verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. What's he talking about? Egypt, right? And here's the interesting, well, I'll get to that. Verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward, and they shall come out with great possessions. Well, wait a minute. How did the nation of Israel get great possessions? Joseph. God sends Joseph into Egypt. He gives a vision, and in this vision, there's seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And what ends up happening initially is people give their money, then they give their land or their, their possessions and themselves and their land. And all these riches come into the nation of Egypt and are held in Egypt until this time when God tells the Israelites to plunder their captors on their way out. And those riches that God brought into Egypt, God lets the Israelites take out of Egypt to build him a tabernacle, to build him a sanctuary. And he continues, though, in verse uh, 15, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the, uh, the, iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm still striving for their souls. You can't have it yet. Okay? So God literally has told the nation of Israel that after 400 years, you will come back to this land and you can take the land. The time will be complete and it's yours. So now you get to the time of the nation of Israel and they're leaving Egypt and when they plunder their neighbors, they're able to plunder their neighbors. God kept his promise. They leave Egypt. God kept his promise. And then they get to the base of Mount Sinai and when God asked to enter into covenant with them, He's wanting them to remember, hey, remember Abraham. All the promises are made to Abraham, they're still true. So when they get to Mount Sinai, they'll make the same covenant that Abraham made. But they didn't. Now, is that God's fault? No, God set them up to succeed. They made their own choice, and that's why they failed. It wasn't a problem with God, again, because finding fault with them. Are you with me? 
That was the issue. So I think this is powerful in Genesis chapter 15. He gave them all the information they needed to make a right choice. And Joshua and Caleb knew this. When the 12 spies are sent to spy out the land in Numbers chapter 13, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 13 and verse 30, listen to this. Numbers 13 and verse 30 says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. The ten people murmur, two people rejoice, and it just sours the whole audience whenever the ten people murmur. He says, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we're able to overcome it. Then you get to chapter 14, verses 6 to 10, and it says, But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation and the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land, just as God said it would be. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. And then what does it say next? Their protection has left them. Why would they even think such a thing were it not for Genesis 15? They knew the promise. They knew the history, and it's rightfully ours. Their protection has left them and has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They still mess up. They still stumble over it. So God allows them to make a covenant that he knows isn't the ideal to show them their need of the ideal, right? Always willing, by the way, to forgive their sins and give them that ideal. So the way that God begins the Ten Commandments, by the way, in Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 20, is reminding them of what he told Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, just like I promised your father Abraham. He even preloaded the Ten Commandments to set them up to succeed. This again is a reminder of how important it is for us to know our history. Everlasting covenant. But Israel of old proved unfaithful and forgot or despised the everlasting covenant made with Abraham. They wished to walk by sight and not by faith. They trusted in themselves rather than in God in the test when God reminded them of his covenant with Abraham and as a help to their father in the power of his promise, reminded them of what he had already done for them. And they presumptuously took upon themselves the responsibility of their own salvation and entered into a covenant from which nothing but bondage and death could come. God, however, who abides faithful, even though men believe not, used even this as an object lesson. And from that shadow they could learn of the reality, even their bondage uh, could contain a prophecy and promise of freedom. Okay, now let's go to Ezekiel 36, and we're going to kind of finish our time together in Ezekiel 36, and a little bit after that. Ezekiel chapter 36, and verse 22. This is another explanation of the new covenant, just gorgeous. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this, what I'm about to do, for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. The nation of Israel were God's chosen messengers, right, to lead the people back to God by their examples. Kelly mentioned very well last night some profound points, but I was so brain dead, I can't remember all of them. Um, but I feel better now. But that's Ezekiel chapter 36. They were terrible witnesses. They were meant to be the light to reach the surrounding world. And the result of their evangelistic effort is that the surrounding nations are blaspheming the name of God and want nothing to do with them. They should be fired, right? They're terrible evangelists. And this is where Paul picks up in Romans 2.24, speaking to the church at Rome, that the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Can you imagine getting a letter from your pastor 
saying the name of God has been blaspheming the Gentiles because of you? That was the case. And he's borrowing the language of Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is one of the things that's driving many of our young people from churches, in Christendom in general, is not seeing a healthy picture of God from the people of God. Babylonians look to be like they're having a whole lot more fun than you guys are having. And it's not just about fun, but they look happier than you look. Right? If we walk into church on a Sabbath morning looking like curmudgeons, right? Crusty curmudgeons who have no joy in their life, why would somebody want what you have? If you look miserable as if you're in bondage to the law and will never be good enough and you think that God doesn't love you, but I better just leg it out just in case, it's not helping the cause of God, which is why God is asking for new covenant Christians. Amen? And they're infectious as we'll see here in a moment. So in verse 23, he says that all the nations will know that I'm the Lord, says the Lord God. How? When I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. And what Kelly shared last night reminded me of this. I was telling Bill that. So when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. In short, when you look like Jesus. Because right now, you don't. And the unbelieving world is going to know that God is Lord alone when his people look like Jesus. But the question is, yeah, but how? Because clearly what we're doing right now isn't working. Well, verse 24 starts to tell us. Verse 24 says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, all the things you're running to to escape from God and escape accountability, all of that. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is the power source. Okay? The nation of Israel, they were selfish, narcissistic, judgmental, and nationalistic. Right? They felt entitled to the favor of God because they were God's chosen people. But what they didn't realize was this mentality and behavior kept others from knowing that they're God's chosen people too. The call of God is not one of exclusivity. It's missional. The call of Israel was missional, right? They weren't better than anybody else. They were missionaries to reach the world. And we need to learn that same lesson from our brethren, from our predecessors. We are no better than anybody else or any other denomination or anybody. We're not better than anybody. In fact, we're to be small men handling great subjects, we're told in the spirit of prophecy. Okay? So the call of Israel was missional. That's why he moved on to the Christian church. It was about mission, not about nation. Yeah? So, uh, Wagner picks up on this again. He says, We may therefore understand that when Abraham erected the family altar, he not only taught his immediate family, but he proclaimed the name of the Lord to all around him. Like Noah, Abraham was a preacher of righteousness. And as God preached the gospel to Abraham, so Abraham preached the gospel to others. The Lord does not call any man merely that he himself may receive the gospel, but that he may make it known to others. Let him that heareth say, come. Amen? We're to be a missional people. Okay? So, here's the point. God replaces the we wills of the people with ten I wills in Ezekiel 36. There are ten I will statements in Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32, and they're in direct response to the experiential fumblings of the nation of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. So the law was not the problem that needed to be changed then. We were the problem that needed to be changed and the law's relevance remains. And the Andrew Study Bible picks up on this as well. It says God will move his followers to obedience through the power of his spirit. This is a unique declaration 
uh, about obedience as a result of God's working in humans through the Holy Spirit. Thus, obedience is not our achievement or performance, but what? A consequence of letting God work in us. Alone, we are not able to follow him. Power to overcome evil and live in harmony with his commandments comes from a source outside of us. Only the Spirit of God can transform hearts and enable people to observe his laws and instructions. And I love this point. What God requires, he also provides. And we see this in Christ's Object Lessons 333. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent, all-powerful. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. And then it says, all his biddings are enablings. You know what that tells me? You don't need to be afraid of the commandments. You don't need to be afraid of, thus saith the Lord, or when God speaks his will into your life, you don't need to be afraid of that. Or when God convicts you of something, there's no reason to be afraid because he's inviting you into something better and he's even the power source to get there. Yeah? And there's a good example of this in John 5, but I don't know if I have time to do this or not. But in John chapter 5, there's a man who's laid at the pool of Bethesda. He's been an invalid for how many years? 38 years. Now, he's lived longer than that, but he's been an invalid for 38 years. Every day, he's passed by the priest, and no one cares about him. Desire of Ages tells us he's the most helpless case there. And when Jesus shows up, by the way, what day of the week does Jesus show up? Pastor Bill Brace, on the Sabbath, a day of loosing bonds and healing people's burdens and setting people free, as Bill was just mentioning. On that circumstance, Jesus shows up to set this guy free and to make a signal statement to the nation of Israel and particularly their leaders. But he comes up to the guy and he asks him a seemingly ridiculous question. Well, here's the other thing. There was a tradition in that time, I don't believe this is a biblical teaching, but there was a tradition in that time that when the water stirred, people believed it was an angel that stirred it, and the first person who gets in the water is healed. But if you're the, if you're the most helpless case there, what are the chances of you getting in that water when it's stirred? It's not going to happen. But you better, I don't, we don't know how often this happened. Let's say 10 times a year. You better believe the first time he's flopping like a fish and doing whatever he can do to get in that water only to see somebody else and be absolutely heartbroken. And you imagine that once this goes on for like five years, that's 50 times later. I mean, yeah, he's trying to get to that water, but he's not trying near as hard as he did the first day. Now imagine 38 years later. At this stage, literally, his heart rate doesn't even increase anymore. He doesn't even shift his body weight because what's the point? He's so filled with shame and self-loathing and self-hatred and he believed that this is a direct result of God cursing me for who I've been because it's a, it's a result of a lifestyle of sin, we're told. And it's at that moment that Jesus shows up. Amen? When all hope is lost... That's when he shows up. But the reason why I don't believe, and this is why I believe Jesus does what he does, by the way, why I don't believe it was a biblical teaching, that it was an angel of God that did this, is because it's teaching survival of the fittest. A crowning teaching of atheism and evolution. God does not work through the means of survival of the fittest. So what does Jesus do? He looks for the least fit and sets him free in front of everyone to make a point. So he heals the guy, but he tells the guy, first of all, do you want to be made well? I mean, yeah, but the response he gives is lame, and it's not because he's lame. The response he gives is lame, is that, uh, well, there's no one to put me in, and no one cares about me. And Jesus doesn't argue with the guy about his lame answer. He says, rise, take up your mat, and walk. 
Well, if I were to say that to someone who's paralyzed on a street corner today, I would be very cruel for saying something like that. But it's not cruel because Jesus understands the premise that we just covered, that in the command is the power to walk in the command. And this guy had a decision to make. Will I believe what God's word says or will I believe how I feel or what I see? Right? Faith is believing what the word has said and relying upon the word only to do what it has said. And he rose, he took up his mat, and he walked. Amen, glory, hallelujah. Yeah? All right, that's, that's an example of that. Anyway, Ezekiel chapter 36 now, verses 28 to 30, says, Then you'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And at similar language to Jeremiah 31, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I'll multiply it and call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And verse 30, and I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. And uh, so God promises to bless them and reassure them. And again, he's making this promise to a disobedient, ugly people. These weren't people that had it figured out which means that there's, work, there's good news for you and for me if we feel kind of ugly and like we don't have things figured out. Hey, the new covenant's for you. Amen? It's written just for you. Then we get to verse 31, and here's what happens when you encounter the undeserved goodness of God. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Right? The amazing long-suffering grace of God leads us to repentance. As it says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. I believe the goodness of God is not just the Calvary event, it's also the covenants. Encountering God's power to transform the life. Romans 5 talks about this. Whoever was tempted to talk about Romans 5, was it you, Brian? Yeah, I mean, Romans 5, 8 to 10 is just fire, right? It's not just the death of Jesus we need, we also need the life of Jesus, right? We are, we are uh, reconciled by his death and we're saved by his life. We need both. And so when we encounter both aspects of the goodness of God, it will lead us to repentance, we're told. Okay? And so our response can be, well, God would do that for me? Yeah, but I'm dirty. I have idols. I have a stony heart, and I don't obey. Doesn't matter. It does not matter. Amen? The, the new covenant is not limited by that. So here's the point. God's love for us is not based upon what we do. It's based upon who he is. God's goodness towards us and his love towards us is not based upon what we do. It's based upon who he is. Now, some may be getting antsy. You know, well, what do I do, right? My flesh longs to have ownership. I want, I want to say in this, well, the 10 I will statements of God are actually dependent upon your I will. I will cease trying to appease God by my deeds. I will stop avoiding the conviction of his Holy Spirit. I will choose to believe the things about me that God believes. I will yield my will, my power of choice, and my desires to the one who's given all for me and who desires my happiness. Right? The I wills of God are dependent upon your I will. And God is asking us to lay down our old covenant experience of I wills and to rest in his. But then some people get freaked about, about this word rest, even though Bill was really clear about it this morning. What I've found is the people who rest in Christ do more for Christ than the people who don't. Some people think, well, we tell people to rest in Christ, that means they're not going to obey the No, that's not what it means at all. Those who find rest in Jesus do more for Jesus than those who don't. Yeah? So, yielding our will and choosing to receive Christ's spirit of surrender is the hardest thing we will ever do in human flesh. But that's what Ellen White talks about. That striving, yeah, it, it is involved. We're not saying it's not. You ever tried fighting your own flesh? 
It's a battle. That's why we need Jesus. Otherwise, we lose that battle, right? Okay, again, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust, which happened as a result of the bad covenant in Exodus 19 and 24. God had to lay their glory in the dust and do for them that which they could not do for themselves. And when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Right? Even God's disciplining is meant to empower us to receive the righteousness of Christ. So don't run from the rod. Embrace it. Amen? So we have to come to terms with the fact that we have nothing to offer God but ourselves. That's all you got. And one of the things I love most about Jesus is that our piety doesn't impress him and our dirt doesn't discourage him. God is not impressed with your obedience. And I don't apologize for saying this. God is not impressed with your obedience. You know why? Because he's the one that did it. <laughs> he loves that you're obeying. He delights for you to delight in his law. But he's not impressed by it because he did it, right? So his love for us is at its zenith no matter what we do. And our actions do not change that for the better or for the worse. It's just how he does life. He can't not love you. You're always on his mind. And Romans 8, 3 to 8 kind of gives us a picture of what goes, goes on here. That um, It says, for what the law could not do, save us. And it was weak to the flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law. God did, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in a flesh like ours. And on account of sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh. Jesus overcame sin in the flesh. Why? According to verse 4, it says, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, the law is still here, present and accounted for. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's how the law is fulfilled in our life, and it can only be done through the goodness, grace, mercy, and faithfulness of Jesus. That's our only hope, yeah? All right, picking back up now to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 33 to 38. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in, uh, uh, yeah, to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. Now, I don't know about you, but my attempt at bringing myself into the favor of God and meeting the requirements of God in my own flesh leads to desolation. It leads to ruins. My life is in shambles were it not for Jesus. Our lives can feel like this total ruins, yeah? But it says in verse 34 that the desolate land shall be tilled, and instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by, so they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. This is amazing to me, that literally when God gets a hold of people, even though their experience looks like ruins, even if they're Christians and their lives look like ruins, when you encounter the new covenant, people take notice. People recognize there's something different about your experience. And what used to look like ruins now looks like the Garden of Eden. Verse 36, Then the nations which are all left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have, built, have rebuilt the ruined places, and I have planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. This is part of what Kelly was talking about again last night, that when God does this transformative work in his people, this now is what lets other people on the outside recognize, oh, it's safe to come in. 
I want what you have. It talks about this in other places in the Old Testament where people come up to him and grab their garment and say, we want your God to be our God, right? We will go where you go. Kind of reminds me of the story of Ruth, too. Even though Naomi didn't have an experience that was attractive at all, if you actually read that story, she's blaming God for her circumstances. The Spirit of God is what ends up reaching Ruth. And then God uses Ruth to reach Naomi. Uh, not Naomi to reach Ruth. If you read the narrative, it doesn't, doesn't really read that way. But anyway, so it's a beautiful promise. And, but he says, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I'm the one that's going to do it. So when I say that all the nations shall know that I'm the Lord, when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes, that's true, but I'm the one that's going to do that if you let me. Will you let me come into your life and do a work in, through, and for you that you cannot do for yourself? Will you let me wrap you in my garment of righteousness? Yeah? Then we get to verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I, and I will increase their men like a flock. What a precious promise that is. Amen? That if you want God to transform your life, you realize that all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You're getting nowhere with your approach. He says, you can let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. You can ask for a new covenant experience right now. And he's so glad that you asked, and he's happy to do so. Amen? There's a, there's a, there's a vacancy sign on the front door. There's room. All right. And then verse 38 says, Like a flock offered his holy sacrifices, and like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with the flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Here's the amazing thing. This type of experience is so winsome that droves will come in. I believe what's being referred to here in Ezekiel chapter 36 is a prophetic foreshadowing of what will happen in Revelation chapter 18. The repetition of the third angel's message of Christ our righteousness will be what leads to one last grand message of mercy that leads many more to come into the fold while that door of mercy is still open. Amen? But it isn't just a message that's preached. It's a message that is lived. Are you hearing me? Giving a, a scientific discourse on the plan of salvation as laid out in the message of Christ our righteousness, hey, that's helpful. But what's it doing for you? Right? I remember Dale Lehman, he was teaching at, at I was to say at Arise. He did teach at Arise because I went there and he taught. But he also taught at our program earlier this year in, uh, in February. And Dale, in his testimony, talks about, in fact, he used to be the pastor of this church. And he was telling the story about how he could give these glowing and eloquent and beautiful messages on righteousness by faith that would lead his members to cry. And in the back of his mind, he would have this thought that, I wish that moved me that way. He didn't have the experience that he was preaching about. And I'm not saying this to bag on Dale. Dale tells his own testimony. And he got to a point when he realized, like, I really have to know the love of God for myself. Like, I, and he, he started this tenacious campaign, praying nonstop, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I want to know that you love me. I want to experience the fact that you love me. And he said that after like 30-something days of praying that, and reading through Desire of Ages, the dam broke. And his life has never been the same. Have you ever talked with a guy? He's just in love with Jesus. Just in love with Jesus. And that's what it took. Right? So you can inquire of God to do this for you. If you find yourself being able to give booming Bible studies on righteousness by faith, but you also realize that there's just a vacancy in your life. Something's missing. 
I get the science, but something about the experience isn't there. You can inquire of God to do that for you today. Amen? What a gift. But for some of us, we may be thinking, yeah, it just sounds too good to be true. Like, like you don't understand my story, D. Like, my life is a mess. I've done this and this and this and this, and I can't get anything right. As it says in Steps to Christ, all of my promises to God are just like these ropes of sand. It just isn't working. This message of Christ, our righteousness, our righteousness by faith, and the gospel, hey, that works for everybody else, but I must be a defective model. Like, it just isn't working for me. I'm basically as good as dead. God actually anticipates this response. It can be easy for us when we read, ver when we read you know, chapters in the Bible to assume that when there's a change in chapters, there's like a change of idea or narrative. And so many times we completely separate Ezekiel 36. In fact, we just don't even read all of it. We just kind of read 22 to 32 maybe and just pull out the, the new covenant goodness and forget the fact that God's original argument for mentioning the new covenant was the fact that you don't look like Jesus and the world is suffering because of this. They don't realize that I'm their solution. Something has to change. That's why he gives the experience. And then he tells them, your ruins I will rebuild. But God doesn't stop there. God knows you're tempted to doubt. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 20. Keep your finger here, but go to Revelation chapter 21, I think. I have a confession to make. I did all this racing, and then I had like 15 minutes to cover a few things. Uh, clocks just get in your head. Revelation chapter 21, but this is a really, really good point. So, God makes this glowing promise to the nation of Israel, beginning in verse 1 of chapter, Revelation chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now for John, sea was a means of separation from everything and everyone that he loved. But that's gone now. Then I, I John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, because he was on the island of Patmos imprisoned, separated from them. But then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he says, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. But man, when you've lived a life that's given you a lot of shame, it's tempting to believe all things or most things excluding me. The devil's real, y'all. And when you've lived a life that you wish you hadn't lived and you mess up when you know better, that shame can really get to you. And we can be tempted to doubt that. And God knows it. And so he speaks into our doubt and says, Right, John, for these words are true and they are faithful. Take it to the bank, my man. This is absolutely gospel truth. I can make you new. I can change your life. And he does the same thing in Ezekiel 37. We think that sounds too good to be true. I did, God just couldn't do that. I'm nothing good at all in me. I'm just dead. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37 and God speaks into that unbelief. And we'll close with this. The hand of the Lord came upon me, Ezekiel 37 verse 1, and brought me out into the, by, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. Now I got some metal, medical folk in this room. I, I'm left with the understanding that when a bone is dry, its hope of living is gone. Am I correct in that? You, you want bones to remain moist. When a bone is dry, game over. 
its hope of life has now stopped. Well, if a bone is very dry, its hope is like goner than gone. Anyway, it's really bad, yeah? They're very dry. Verse 3, and he said to me, I love this. God says, son of man, can, can these bones live? Now, God knows what he's about to do, but he wants Ezekiel to know what he's about to do. He says, uh, Lord, you know. And he says, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God uh, to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and their skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. This is what false revivals look like. Whole lot of noise and seeming movement, but there's no deep transformation. There's no power from God. And false revivals are coming to confuse people about the true revival that's going to happen in, in Revelation chapter 18. Yeah? Three unclean spirits like frogs are coming to deceive the world. There's going to be miracles, fire coming from heaven, all kinds of stuff to deceive the people of the earth. But there's no power from God. No power from God. So what happens? And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, from all corners of the earth, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Reminds me of Ezekiel 36, and it reminds me again of Revelation 18. But some people may be saying, Look, this is just an allegory. This isn't talking about people, like you're going way too far with this. This is just some like homiletical witchcraft you're doing up there. That's not what's happening. Read the very next verses. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. I am talking about people. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. You ever felt that way? God says, nah, no sir. Your hope is not cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Amen? It doesn't matter how dead you feel, no matter how many empty promises you've made to God, and every attempted obedience has been a total disaster. It does not matter. When you encounter that holy wind of God, when you encounter the, the most precious message and an infilling of the Holy Spirit, God can raise you from the dead. Amen? No matter how hopeless and depressed and discouraged you may feel, you will rise by God's grace. He can change your life. And he says again, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. We have not because we ask not, because we believe not. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, and so is God. I'm a loser, I'm no good, I can't change, and God says, that's not what I said. I don't know who told you that, but that's not what you heard from me. I'm telling you that I can raise you from the dead 
And not only will I raise you from the dead, because again, the gospel wasn't just meant for you, but when I raise you from the dead, the surrounding lost nations around you are going to know that I'm the Lord. Amen? It not only will change your life, but the change that happens in your life will change theirs if you let it. Yeah? Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for loving us so much that there is no lack of power on your part. There is lack of belief on mine. So God, forgive us. Forgive our unbelief. Forgive us for not taking you at your word. And Lord, I pray, oh God, in this very moment, you said that we can inquire of you to do this for us. I pray that you would do in, through, and for everyone in this room what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, we confess our nothingness and we ask to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is our desire. This is our plea. We ask it from our hearts and we long for it to be our experience. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Greetings, friends. Pastor Rob Bernardo here from Michigan's historic Battle Creek Tabernacle. What you've been watching is just one of the many presentations from the 2020-1888 National Conference called It's Midnight. And I would say that's a pretty appropriate title for the times in which we live, wouldn't you? You know, I think we're all looking for that fourth angel of Revelation to come down upon this dark world with his light and glory. And I believe that is going to happen soon. Think about it. Jesus' finest hour was also the hour of the power of darkness. And so it will be with his church in the last days. The greatest days for both his church and his gospel are yet to come. So keep studying, keep sharing. You'll see the web address below. There are many other presentations to watch. And so may God bless you. And may you be found faithful when he comes.